Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And as we head closer to May 15th and the primary date, uh, this week's podcast is really all about politics. We're going to kind of try to break down what we're seeing and what we're reporting on the governor's race. We'll do a deep dive on the governor's race this week, probably do something similar next week with the state superintendent's race. Yeah. Let's start with the GOP uh, Republican debate on Monday night, the Idaho debate broadcast live on Idaho Public Television. Kevin, you were on the panel. The most important thing I learned is that each of those candidates will be a champion for foster kids. Uh, but at some point, we got to education issues, didn't we? Yeah, I, we, we, did, we refrained from uh, hearing a uh, leading the candidates in a chorus of we are the champions but that would have been fine it would have been consistent with the answers on that issue but but all all snark aside having a little fun with one of the questions in case you didn't watch the debate on monday but you should one watch of, the debate one of the questions it seemed like uh, more than one of the questions but but anyway <laughs> there was uh there was plenty of substance coming out of this debate um some disagreement and some some short tempers uh this debate kind of lived up to some of what we expected in terms of of some fireworks of some uh some back and forth between the candidates uh we kind of expected that given the way this campaign has unfolded with the barrage of advertising mostly negative advertising you kind of knew that when these candidates got on the stage that that uh, attention was going to be pretty close to the surface. Yeah, for sure that it was. I liked uh, I liked some of your questions, Kevin. Uh, you really got into education issues, and one of the things you kind of mixed it up with Congressman Congressman Labrador a little bit uh, about the issue of Common Core and how he feels there. Uh, but what what were some of your biggest takeaways when we did get to? substantive discussions about education, because that was a big portion of the debate. That was something that I keyed in on anyways. The part of the debate that I kind of uh, focused in on in terms of my role as asking questions was to to kind of drill down with the candidates on tax issues and then on education yep. issues, because the two clearly go hand in hand. What I wanted to hear from the three candidates was a sense of where they are going to go on tax policy in light of what we already saw from the 2018 legislative session. You know, we, we had a net tax cut of $125 million, mostly in reduced income tax rates. But you've got all three candidates still talking about further reductions in the income tax rate. They also didn't talk about it Monday night, but they've said it before that they want to repeal the sales tax on groceries. So you've got three Republican candidates really pushing for continued tax cuts. And I really wanted to kind of uh, hone in a little bit on Congressman Labrador's uh, tax plan, which he calls the 555 plan. And in a nutshell, he wants to cut income tax rates for individuals and corporate uh, corporations to 5% mm -hmm. or lower, uh, and reduce the sales tax from 6% to 5%. And he said that this is about a billion dollars of tax cuts that he feels will be covered through reducing or removing some of the loopholes and exemptions that we have in the tax code. And you pushed him on that a little bit, and there's two things going on. Billion dollars worth of tax cuts, we're talking about roughly a $3.4, $3.5 billion state budget each year. But this idea of closing loopholes and exemptions, 
it's not new and it hasn't gone anywhere before because each one of those groups that has an exemption has a constituency, a group of stakeholders, in some cases lobbyists, in other cases very powerful mm-hmm. lobbyists advocating on their behalf. People have talked about this for years. Nobody has even taken a, a serious it, shot it, at it's it. It's really been difficult to get any traction on any kind of overhaul of the uh, sales tax exemptions, and it has been studied and studied and studied. So there's not a lot of new ground here to cover. And as you say, and and I've seen it firsthand, most uh, reporters have, when you start talking about removing one of these exemptions, uh, every one of these exemptions has a constituency, and every one of these constituencies has a lobbyist. Uh, My my suspicion about a plan such as uh, what, La- what Congressman Labrador is pushing here is that it will be a whole lot easier to get the legislature to go in on the billion dollars of tax cuts than it will be to get the legislature to sign off on the billion dollars or so of removed exemptions uh, to cover the, the cost. So it, it really does come down to a question. If you're really going to go to this kind of uh, tax cut, are you going to be able to offset it with uh, by removing loopholes, or are you going to try to offset it by reducing uh, reducing government uh, spending? So that was the tension that I was trying to get at here. But really, you talked to all three of the candidates, as we, we did during the debate, they're all talking about tax cuts. And they're all sticking to the idea that the state can afford and needs additional tax cuts, even in light of what passed in 2018. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I mean, and, and here's where we come in. This is why we pay such close attention to budget and tax policy type of issues. K-12 public school spending accounts for about 48% of all Idaho general fund spending each year. When you throw in higher education, now we're talking 61, 62% of the state budget. So if we're talking massive tax cuts on the order, on the magnitude of $1 billion, how, how do you do it? If, if 60% of your overall state general fund budget is tied up between K-12 and higher education funding, how do you do it with education? Uh, so that's why we focus on those issues closely. But when you talk about exemptions, where are you going to get it? Are, are you going to eliminate the, the sales tax on, on your haircuts and go after barbers and, and cosmetologists? Are you going to go after some of those businesses that are members of IACI that have some of the most powerful lobbying forces in the state behind it? I mean, I don't... I don't see it happening. Um, it, it it hasn't happened in the past. I mean, that's not to say it couldn't happen in the future, but the, the history is not uh, very favorable you know, to the idea. And they would paint that as a tax increase for the groups that are targeted. And so uh, tough politics there. It, it, it is tough politics. And what we tried to do, what I tried to do, is juxtapose it against some of the education spending commitments that the state is facing. Again, a uh, study released last month, suggests that the state has to spend at least another $120 million to make good on the commitments and the policies that came out of the K-12 task force from 2013. That's just to cover the task force uh, commitments. It doesn't get at anything that you may want to try to do in higher education. It doesn't even get at, you know, when I asked uh, Lieutenant Governor Little about his approach to teacher salaries, he wants to increase the minimum salary uh, for teachers to $40,000 a year but recognizes as well that you're going to have to put more money into the higher end of the salary grid to take care of veteran teachers, to keep mentor teachers, leader, leaders in, the, in the schools, in the classroom. So 
that doesn't necessarily factor into that 120 million. So you've got a lot of tension here between the clamor that's coming, at least from the candidates for tax relief, and the the pressures to fund K-12, higher education, and the rest of state government. And that's not; those aren't the only things on the table with K-12. Uh, we also expect, quite possibly, that the school funding formula interim committee will come back with a recommendation to next year's legislature uh, to address the school funding situation in Idaho. We've already seen some estimates that moving from an attendance to an enrollment-based model of funding could cost tens of millions of dollars potentially mm-hmm. if we want to keep school districts whole and not have them see budget reductions based on uh, the current baseline budgets that they're receiving. The higher ed task force recommendations that are basically waiting to be acted on, many of those would have uh, price tags attached to them. Uh, there was an interest this year and in a commitment to increase funding for scholarships. If those f- scholarships prove popular, uh, we may see more proposals again to raise funding for state scholarships, especially in light of the higher education affordability issues and our 60% goal that has gone nowhere over the last Mm -hmm. eight years. All these things cost money, and I don't see how you can have this massive tax cut at the same time as increasing investments in your largest uh, budget items each year. I I don't see how you can do all that. There's a lot of tension within the budget in terms of making all of this work. And you know, speaking of tension, I mean, the, the, there there was plenty of it uh, on on stage and even backstage before the debate. Um, it, one of the fun things about being on a panel like this is you get a little bit of a sense of the behind the scenes yeah. of it all. Um, when Tommy Alquist and Raul Labrador met behind uh, met backstage to pull numbers out of a hat to find out who was going to speak first uh, Monday night. That handshake was really tense. <laughs> that that was not a warm, uh, fuzzy moment by any means. And it spilled over into the debate itself, where both candidates, both uh, Alquist and Labrador, accused the other of lying. Um, Labrador called Alquist a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character who can be really nice here in front of a camera, but behind the scenes he's been running a negative campaign. Alquist later said, Raul Labrador used to be a pretty nice guy, and then he got elected to Congress. So <laughs> there was plenty of that, and, and literally in the middle of it was Little. Yeah. Standing between the two candidates, and, and generally outside of the fray. He did, sort of, yeah. And I don't know how that plays with voters. In some sense, he seemed a lot more uh, low-key and more on topic and, and not engaged in some of the sniping. I, I don't know how that plays. Does that play as a positive uh, in the eyes of voters that he comes across as, you know, you know, more mature and gubernatorial, if you will? Or do people look at it and say, well, there really wasn't a lot of fight there. There wasn't a lot of passion. Who, who knows? Who, who knows how this plays? We'll get better sense of that when people actually do go to the polls. It was interesting. My take was, and I, and I gave Representative Raul Labrador a little bit of a hard time a couple of minutes ago, but one of my takes was in terms of the strongest performances of the night, I thought Congressman Labrador scored a lot of points on Tommy Alquist, particularly in this one discussion that didn't really have anything to do with education, but it had to do uh, with kind of some hot-button issues surrounding abortion and what would happen if a certain bill came to the governor's desk. Tommy Alquist refused to answer Melissa Davlin, the moderator's question, several times. And then either in the follow-up or in his close, I think Raul scored a lot of 
points when he said that Tommy refused to answer that question, and the reason is is because he doesn't have experience thinking about these tough, complicated decisions that he's going to have to make. I thought that that was a strong performance right there. Well, and, and I think the other the other take that I have, being behind the scenes, I think Labrador was a lot more assertive, not just in terms of some of his comments, but certainly assertive in terms of trying to take command of the debate. He kind of he was he was a force. He, he kind of dominated the whole debate. I think he probably I didn't time it, but it seemed like he may have spoke the most. Um, it, he was definitely a presence throughout the debate. I, I think well, definitely, and I think. Again, one of the behind-the-scenes things is uh, if it seems like we're listening to two things when we're on one of these panels, it's because we are. Uh, we do have a an earpiece in during the debate. And because of the debate format that public TV is using this time, which is a lot more loose and a lot more uh, conversational, which I like. I think it has a lot of advantages to the rigid, timed format. That puts pressure on the moderator and on the panelists to try to make sure that all all of the candidates get about the same amount of time. So throughout the evening, uh, Seth O'Gilvy, the, the producer, was telling us, you know, Labrador has had more time. He's spoken for longer. So try to make sure that you're directing questions towards Little and Alquist. In the interest of making sure that all three candidates had roughly the same amount of time uh, to make their case to voters. So again, I think that's a sign. Labrador really did try to take the fight <laughs> to the other two candidates. Not just in terms of what was almost a, a fight on on personality with Alquist, but also a fight on issues with both of the other candidates. So we'll see how it plays out. Much more tame debate we saw on Sunday night uh, between the two Democratic candidates, uh, A.J. Belukov and Paulette Jordan. Um, not a lot of differences of opinion on much of any topics, especially education-related. The topic that I honed in on yep. was the issue of marijuana legalization. Uh, Jordan speaking strongly in favor of legalization, partly to provide some help to patients who may want to use marijuana for medicinal purposes, but also couching it as a, a moneymaker, a revenue source for the state that could help to pay for education programs. Belukov uh, said he was generally opposed to the idea of legalization and kind of described it as a moot point because he didn't see that getting through the legislature. Right. Probably true, but you have to also remember that in most states where you've had legalization, voter-led it's, ha it's happened through a referendum or a voter initiative. So, yeah. you know, anyway, that was kind of the takeaway from that debate. Two on, differences we had Sunday seen night. was the marijuana issue, and then we talked, I believe it was last week, a little bit of a distinction on charter schools, and, and you talked about that last week. That was another issue where I've seen... Uh, them show some distinctions between the two of themselves in the Democratic race. Those are the two big ones I've picked up. Maybe I'm missing something. No, that's um, about the, the big one. And we have published our story this week, uh, a closer look at Paulette Jordan's yes. positions on education. We've done this with the other four major gubernatorial candidates. So now we have Jordan's piece, uh, which kind of rounds out the, the series, if you will. And I focus in on where Jordan stands on charter schools and on school choice. One of the things that came out in Sunday's debate, uh, Paula Jordan attended private school in Washington State, and now her two sons are attending the same private school in Washington State. And she says that that's a reflection on what she sees as the problems in rural schools, such as the schools in her, in her hometown of Plummer. 
she was asked directly, well, if you're elected governor, are your kids going to come back to, uh, to school in Idaho? And she said, well, that's going to be their choice, and I'm going to respect their, their choice. So she was noncommittal about that. We get into that a little bit in the, uh, in the story about Paulette Jordan, and you can look at that one. You can look at all of our in-depth interviews with the gubernatorial candidates and the congressional candidates in the first uh, congressional district race, where we really do try to uh, get past the sound bites and, and get into a little bit more detail about where they stand on education topics. Yeah, the, the most recent piece, as you said, was the profile of Paulette Jordan. Uh, you can find that. That was published on Thursday. But also, if you head to our homepage, we have an elections tab with the state flag on it. And if you click there, that's where we're archiving all of our elections coverage leading up to the May 15th Democratic and Republican primaries. It's a great resource. Uh, so head to the homepage. On the right-hand side rail, I believe it is. Uh, look for the election 2018 logo and the state flag. Everything you need to get prepared uh, for the big May 15th primaries will be right there in one spot, right? Right. And we will be, you will be uh, dropping a series of stories next week uh, focusing our attention on the state superintendent's race. You have four profiles coming up of, of the four candidates in, in both parties vying for that uh, state superintendent's race. I know you're not going to go into a whole lot of detail about what you found, but give us a sense of, in general, what to look for in these stories. Sure. It, it's been something that I've really focused on uh, the last three weeks. I've gotten away from my sort of day-to-day -day coverage and, and focused on taking a closer look at the superintendent's race. I have uh, completed interviews. I've spent a good amount of time with, e with each of the four candidates uh, in the race. And just to remind folks, uh, we've got contested Democratic and Republican primaries for the state superintendent's race. On the Republican side, we have incumbent state superintendent Sherry Ybarra uh, facing off against Wilder School District Superintendent Jeff Dillon in the Republican primary. On the Democratic side of the ticket, you have Boise retiree Alan Humble facing off against Capitol High School teacher Cindy Wilson. She teaches government and politics um, at Capitol High School. I spent time with each of them. Uh, I uh, have some profiles focusing in on education issues. We talk about school safety. We talk about school funding. We talk about teacher pay and teacher retention, and we ask each of the candidates what their top issues are in education. So I think that that will be, um, I think that those will be really interesting pieces. I've, I've written uh, a lot of them, and they'll be coming out early next week. And so if this week and last week was about the governor's race, next week for us at Idaho Education News will really be about uh, shining the spotlight on the state superintendent's race. And that will kind of kick off uh, this Friday today, if you're listening, uh, the day that we post the podcast on Friday, April 27th. I'm going to be serving on the panel for the state superintendent Republican candidates debate, and that will be broadcast live on Idaho Public Television at 8 p.m. on this Friday night and also on social media. And I think right. we're going to try to have it on the Idaho Education News Facebook page as a Facebook Live video. But Jeff Dillon... And if you miss it, it's always going to be available after the fact yep. online. You can watch on demand uh, through Idaho Public TV as well. Yep. This will be a good one because, uh, it's, like we said, uh, the Democratic event has been canceled. Uh, but the Republican event is this Friday, today, if you're listening to the day that we published the podcast. And both Jeff Dillon and incumbent Sherry Ybarra will be there. And so that's a great opportunity uh, for voters to get a look at the two Republican candidates on the same stage, uh, interacting with each other, debating each other. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I, and I think it's going to be really interesting. I'm going to be watching to see 
how assertive is Jeff Dillon in a debate format where he is on the same stage with his incumbent opponent? You know, we've talked about this before. It's been a very low-key race. No money, no advertising, yeah. no yard signs even to speak yeah. of. And really from Dillon, we've had very little in the way of um, coming out with statements, coming out with policy positions, coming out with uh, with questions or criticisms of the, the incumbent. Uh, he's been pretty silent through the budgeting process. He was silent through the, the whole Dan Goykachia saga that we saw unfold last summer. Um, silent during the legislative session when Ibarra had kind of a mixed result at the state house, got some things through, but uh, uh, failed on some key initiatives of hers, like rural education and mastery-based education, which is uh, being piloted in Dillon's own district out in Wilder. It's been an, an odd campaign in the sense that uh, Dillon has not tried to differentiate himself much from Ibarra, uh, take the fight to Ibarra as a challenger generally has to do in an election. Uh, we've not seen that. So in a sense, all of the, you know, this may be his last best chance to make a case to viewers and voters uh, as to why they should make a change. Yeah, and I did see Jeff Dillon around the state house at some of the big hearings this year. Um, but he was more an observer. Uh, I did talk with him. He was following the issues. He was at the state house. He was talking with people. But it was more as an observer or behind the scenes or taking on right. more of a quiet role. Sure, and he may have been working, well, he probably he was, he probably right? was working he was. behind the scenes trying to line up support and trying to uh, you know, get his name out and get his uh, message out. But in terms of making a public splash, he really hasn't done that. So this may be his one opportunity to do that. Yeah, whereas Superintendent Ibarra was an unknown educator from Mountain Home four years ago, uh, but now she's enjoyed a prominent role as the state superintendent, built up name recognition, uh, built up contacts uh, within the Republican Party, certainly. And so she's a different candidate right. than she was four right. years ago. And incumbency gives you the opportunity to get your name out and get uh, and make news and, and get attention drawn to yourself. I mean, you know... There's nothing nefarious about that. That's just the right, way it is. Right. Uh, you know, an incumbent can announce a new initiative, can put out a press release saying we've got this program that we're launching. Whether it's you know the school safety initiative that she is pledging to work on in 2019, or the the Smarty Ants uh, preschool app, you, you name it. I mean, an incumbent can come out and you know make some news by you know touting these initiatives, and, and that's just how it goes. So then kind of the, the onus is on the challenger to say, well, wait a minute, this is what I have to offer. Uh, this is what I think is a better approach than what you're seeing from the incumbent. So Friday night's a big night for, for Jeff Dillon. Uh, I would say it's a make or break. Yeah, it, yeah, it'll be interesting. And I mean, I think some of the same things you talked about with the state superintendent's race and, and the incumbency factor there, I think... When you take the incumbent out of the mix, when we look at the gubernatorial race, the congressional race, heck, even the lieutenant governor's race, those are more wide open races. And we're seeing those candidates mix it up because they perhaps do see an opportunity without an incumbent in there. I think that's maybe why those races exactly. got so crowded. And they're probably too crowded. And, and they're they're um, crowded. And I think the dynamic is different because, you know, when when we were watching the three gubernatorial candidates on Monday night, I would not label any of the three a prohibitive favorite. 
I can, you know, I can see a path to the nomination fairly clearly for Labrador or Little. For Alquist, maybe a little bit tougher to see how you get to that magic number uh, as kind of running as an outsider. But I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, and when you get to the lieutenant governor's race, where you have these five have candidates, no idea. I mean, I, I you know, flip a coin, yeah. and you get to the congressional race, and we will have a uh, debate, by the way, with the uh, first district congressional candidates on the Republican side. That's a toss-up. These are really hard races to, to handicap. No incumbent, low turnout, low voter numbers, uh, every candidate thinking, you know, I can get to that magic number. So... Those are different kind of races yeah. as opposed to the superintendent's race. So Friday night will definitely be worth watching. And if you miss it Friday night, um, you can always catch up and watch it on demand. And we will have, uh, you will be on the panel. I'll yep. be watching and I'll have uh, a story coming out uh, Saturday morning, kind of breaking down what we heard, maybe what we didn't hear. Um, give you a little bit of a look at what uh, what went down in that debate. All right. It's going to be a big uh, few days leading up to the May 15th primary. I think that's everything that we wanted to talk about this week. Next week, we will be back, and uh, we will focus on the state superintendent's race and those profiles and that debate kind of in the same way that we treated the governor's race uh, this week. And so look for that next week on the podcast. We'll be back talking about the state superintendent's race. Head over to IdahoEdNews.org starting early next week and look for the profiles of the state superintendent candidates to begin rolling out on our homepage. Kevin, before we go, I want to congratulate you. Uh, Your work uh, taking a look at Life Beyond High School was recognized with an Edward R. Murrow Award. Idaho Education News actually won four Edward R. Murrow Awards. We just found out the other day. It's the first time that we've won those, uh, and it's kind of a big deal. This is a regional contest um, that uh, is available to digital and broadcast platforms and uh, congratulations, no, well, well deserved. No, but this this was a team effort. This whole thing was a team effort. We to win four Murrow Awards is a big deal for us because it's a it's a prestigious award. It's a regional competition uh, spread in this case across five states. We're now qualified for nationals. You know, the, the series that I had a chance to work on. I mean, that's that's a team effort. Andrew Reed was instrumental. John Sisk, our IT and graphics guru, was instrumental. Everybody on staff giving me guidance, giving me time to do this thing. I mean, you know, none of us ever really do a solo project in, in this business. None, none of us are none of us are prints in the Paisley Park studio recording all of the instruments and doing all of the overdubs and all of the engineering. It's it's a group effort and so a really big day for us, uh really exciting. Uh you know, and thank you, but also thank you for, for all the help that uh, and all all that you've done to help you know, make a make a project like that happen. Yeah, you're welcome. And, and thanks to all of our readers and thanks to our listeners who have uh, been following us. It's about five and a half years in now yes. uh, since we launched, and it's been quite the journey. But uh, we would not be here uh, without our readers, without our listeners. And so thanks to everybody who's, who's checked us out, read one of our stories, listened to one of our podcasts over the years. Uh, that's why we do it. And, and so thanks so much to everybody. Uh, that wraps it up for this week. As always, uh, really appreciate it. I really enjoy when you guys uh, check out the Extra Credit Podcast. We try to have a lot of fun. So thanks so much. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. And in honor of Edward R. Murrow, good night and good luck. 